Well, thank you, Katie, for that reading this morning. What a passage. Holy cow. Good to see y'all. How many, this is your first time in the Y? First time in the Y, anybody this morning? All right, so, so last week we said we're doing church at the... All right, just want to make sure y'all still remember that. Good morning. My name is Aaron, uh, pastor here at Lake Forest Church. So glad you're with us. And uh, boy, what a passage we heard read today from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, I wanted to start with a little story. I read a story this week about a guy named Colin O'Brady. Maybe you've heard of Colin. Colin wanted to be the first person, and in fact was the first person, to hike the entire continent of Antarctica by himself. Now, why a person would want to be the first person to hike Antarctica by themselves, uh, a whole nother story. But he lived in a tent in sub-zero degree weather for 57 days. He carried 400 pounds of gear and supplies to make it. And, uh, you know, afterwards, some of the reporters are saying, now, Colin, why why did you do this? What, What compelled you to do this? And he said, well, you know, It was almost, in his words, almost a kind of spiritual thing, a kind of spiritual quest. He said, I I just want my life to be remembered for something. I want my life to count. Isn't that interesting? Seems like Colin's not alone. There's a book that recently came out called The Rise of the Supermen, all about people who push themselves to these kinds of extremes, not just to test the limits of their own humanity, but almost as the author of the book says, to grasp at something meaningful, to to grasp at greatness. It seems that somewhere inside of us, each one of us, is this longing for greatness. We, We all want our lives to count, don't we? We all want our lives to matter. And when we're young, the stuff that we think will make it matter, uh, as we get older, some of that stuff just seems to lose its weightiness. It just doesn't seem to measure up, and we're kind of left with this feeling, well, what is it in life that's going to make my life matter? What is it that's going to make my life meaningful? What's going to make it count? And that's what I want to explore with you today. Last week, we launched a new series called The People of God, and we're walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this first century letter from a man named Peter. Now, Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, and after Jesus' death and his resurrection, Peter became one of the leaders in the early church. In fact, Peter was one of the prominent leaders for the Christian church, the followers of Jesus, in Jerusalem. Now, there's another guy you might have heard of named the Apostle Paul. Paul was traveling all around Asia Minor, what we know as modern-day Turkey. I think we have a map of this. And he was planting churches everywhere he went. Well, what we know is that Paul gave his life. He ended up being martyred for his faith in Jesus, and these churches were suddenly left without their shepherd. They were left without their pastor. And so what scholars believe is that it was actually Peter, an illiterate, small business owner, fisherman from Galilee, who stepped in to shepherd this vast network of churches across Asia Minor. And that was the occasion for his letters. He sat down to write these letters to provide care and instruction to these churches. And because he wasn't literate, he had an assistant to help that he dictated those letters to. And we have those two letters from Peter in the Bible as First and Second Peter, and that's what we've been looking at. Now, it's important to remember that these churches were really struggling. They, they were mostly Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They, they were from all different kinds of nationalities, and they really were in search of their identity. 
what did it actually mean to be a Christian? What did it mean to be a Christian in the world? What kind of people were they to be? And if you were with us last week, we started right out the gate. The first thing that Peter wants them to know is that even though they feel like second-class Christians, even though they feel like nobodies, even though they feel like everyone would overlook them, Peter says to them, you are chosen. God chose you. God wants you on his team. And that's what we talked about last week. But Peter's going to pick up here in the second chapter of his letter, and he's going to build on that very principle. Not only are we chosen, Peter would say, but here it is, we are chosen for a purpose that is greater than ourselves. True greatness, true meaning in life, and that's what Peter's going to get into. This first part of Peter's letter is all about identity, and he uses one metaphor in the beginning, in the first chapter, over and over again to remind us that we are chosen. It's this metaphor, it's this word picture of being children, of being adopted. Remember, he said, you are God's children. He chose you, and this metaphor is the dominant theme of chapter 1. But when he gets to chapter 2, he does something interesting. Look at what he does in these first verses. Therefore, he says, rid yourself, literally take off like a dirty t-shirt, all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Let's pray and go home. Aren't you glad you came to church today, right? And then he picks up this metaphor. He says, like newborn babies. Okay, Paul, I mean, excuse me, Peter, we've been with you all the time. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, so far so good, right? We're still stuck with this baby adoption metaphor, but right here Peter suddenly changes gears. He changes metaphors. Look with me at verse 4. He says this, and now as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what is happening here? I don't know if you remember your high school English class. Do I have any English teachers in the room? My wife is an English, yeah, got some, okay. So you, we know this from English 101, right? The fundamental, one of the fundamental rules of writing is you do not mix metaphors. You do not change gears on your metaphor midstream, right? And I'm terrible at this. I really am. Because for me, for me, when the clock is running out and I'm called upon to take the last shot, I always strike out in the end zone. That was actually pretty good. Thank you. I thought that one was good this morning. You see, the point is this. Peter makes a sudden shift here, a hard right turn. And he's not just mixing metaphors on accident. He's doing something on purpose. He's trying to get our attention because he wants us to see something profound. He says, you and I, we are, get this, living stones. What is a living stone, Peter? Uh, that, that makes, I know, I've heard of the rolling stones. Living stones, Peter, what are you talking about? Well, it seems that Peter didn't just fail writing 101, he also failed biology, because what everyone knows is that rocks are dead, right? In this world, there are two basic categories of things. There are rocks and minerals, and there are plants and animals. Peter, rocks don't live. What are you talking about? We can imagine Peter's audience, right? He's got them right where he wants them, because they're saying, Peter, what is a living stone. And it's right here that Peter says, I'm so glad you asked. 
let me tell you. And he continues with some interesting imagery, words like priesthood and sacrifice and a spiritual house, temple, a dwelling place. See, to understand what Peter is talking about here, we need to understand a little bit more about a concept from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, something called the temple. Back at the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of God's story in the book of Exodus, we're told that God leads Moses and his people out of Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh let my people go. Remember that story? So he leads the people out through the wilderness, and we're told that as God leads them, he leads them as a pillar of fire by night, and a pillar of smoke by day. Y'all, that's just kind of weird and mysterious, isn't it, right? What's the point? Well, the point is that God is leading them, but God can't get anywhere near them, or they are quite literally going to be barbecue, right? So God invents a way. He comes up with a way that he can dwell with, he can live with, he can meet with his people. In fact, they call it, quite literally, the tent of meeting. And every time I talk about the tent of meeting, I like to remind our church that this is proof that God likes camping. And if you don't, that's a spiritual growth issue. We can talk about that later. You see, the tent of meeting was the place where God could draw near to his people and they could meet with him. A holy, transcendent God with flesh, earth-bound human beings. The tent of meeting was where God's glory came near, where his greatness could be glimpsed firsthand. Well, eventually, over time, as they're taking this tent around, as it does for me with my backpacking tent too, uh, the tent starts to wear out, right? It starts to get some holes in it. Uh, The rain is getting in. So along comes a guy named King Solomon. Uh, And King Solomon uh, says, you know what? We we need better than a a house of straw tent, not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. We're gonna build a temple out of stones, that, that will last, a place where God can meet, but it will be permanent. And he builds the first great temple in the Bible. Well, eventually that temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and if you remember from our series in the book of Nehemiah just a few months ago, a second temple is built. And we have a picture of this because this temple, y'all, I mean, this was like something off of MTV Cribs, right? Like this was pimp my temple. This was just like make it, this blue the previous temple out of the water. It was glorious. It was huge. This was a fitting home for the God of all creation. This was a fitting home that could finally house God's glory and majesty. Now, here's what we need to understand about this temple. In the Jewish mindset of that time, for the Jewish listener, the temple was where God lived. Now, I know this sounds a little bit strange to modern ears, but for for the Jewish thinker, the temple was the place where heaven and earth touched. The temple was the place where earthbound creatures could commune with, could meet with the divine. You get that picture? The temple was everything. The problem was the temple was fixed. It was stuck and God was stuck in it. If you wanted to meet with God, if you wanted to plead your case to God, you had to make the trek to Jerusalem. You had to make your sacrificial offering, and you couldn't go into the holy spaces. Only the priests were allowed there, so you had a lot of problems if you wanted to commune with God, if you wanted to meet with God. And so what begins to stir up is this storyline that God is about to do something brand new. God is about to break out of the temple and dwell with 
his people. So when Jesus comes, John, in his gospel, tells us Jesus came and he made his dwelling where? Among us. He was doing something new. Now, fast forward to Peter. You see, Peter wants to make this point to his people. The temple, he says, those stones were dead. They were fixed, and nobody was moving them. So here it is. You can imagine his, his listeners when saying, he's saying, look, you know the temple in Jerusalem where God lives? You know that really big one made out of stones? You know what Jesus has done? God is not going to live in that temple anymore. Instead, he's going to come and live with you. Or rather, he's going to come and live in you. You see, what Peter is trying to get across here is not simply that God has chosen us, but that he has chosen us to be his temple, to be his dwelling. You are to be living stones in which God dwells. And y'all, this is revolutionary. See, Peter's big idea right here in chapter 2 is simply this. That God's purpose is that through you and through me, the people of God, his glory and his goodness might be made known to the world around us. That is God's purpose for the church. That God's glory and his goodness might be made known to the world around us. So, how do we do that? I mean, really, like... Okay, Aaron, that sounds great. Stones, living, temple, that was a funny story from the Old Testament. Okay, I get it. Aaron, what does this mean for me? Well, with the few minutes we have together today, I want to give three things that Peter gives us in this very chapter. Three ways that we live out this assignment as living stones, as the people of God. So first is this, for note takers, number one, first thing we do, the people of God, is we offer spiritual sacrifices. First thing Peter says, the people of God are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what are those? Well, in the same way that animal material sacrifices were offered in the temple, when we gather together as the temple, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices of worship and prayer and confession. You see, as living stones, when we come together to worship, there's something very real and very spiritual that happens among us. It's as if God comes to dwell in our temple right here at the YMCA, right there in church online. And this is God's plan for us as the church, that when we come together on Sunday morning to draw near to God, that he would draw near to us and that we might be changed, we might be healed, we might be encouraged and transformed through that encounter. I was recently talking to someone here at Lake Forest who shared a little story with me. They said, Aaron, I know this probably sounds weird, but when I come on Sunday morning, it's like there's something different in this room. It's as if God is actually here in some way. And then they said this. They said, does that sound crazy? <laughs> I said, no, that doesn't sound crazy at all. Remember what Jesus said? He said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. I heard another story from someone who shared with me about what their experience was when they first came to Lake Forest. They said for the first many, many weeks they would come and they would sit in back and they wouldn't sing, and I'm not picking on anybody sitting in the back row today, but they would just sit in the back and they would just sit and listen. They said they could not help themselves. They would just quietly weep 
through the entire service. Something was present that was moving them. They couldn't explain it. They said, I just felt God's presence in a way that was very real. Maybe you've been coming. Maybe you're not sure what you think about this whole God thing. You like Jesus and his teachings, but, but that's kind of it. Maybe that's about as far as it goes for you. You, you think this Christianity thing uh, is, is just kind of a philosophy or a worldview, maybe a set of ethical teachings, and it includes those things to be sure. But my friend, Christianity is fundamentally a belief that because Jesus did what he did, we can have a personal connection with God. A real, spiritual, and mysterious connection to the God who created us. That is at the core of our Christian faith. So let me ask you this morning, what role do spiritual sacrifices play in your life? What rhythms of worship and prayer and confession allow you to connect with God? First thing we do as living stones, we offer spiritual sacrifice. Second thing is this, the people of God's living stones are to live as citizens of another kingdom, as citizens of God's kingdom. See, one of the important things Peter wants us to remember when reading his letter is just how hard it was for Christians at this time. There was this intense pressure to conform to the Roman culture around them. In fact, many of the Christians in these churches would actually have been Roman citizens themselves. But Peter gives them this fascinating title. He writes to them in verse 11, and he calls them, get this, he says, For, you are foreigners and exiles. And this phrase is, is quite provocative. It's another one of Peter's mixed metaphors. How can you be a foreigner and an exile? How can you be what some translate this as a resident alien? I am someone who lives here, but this is not my home. See, Peter seems to think that as Christians, we are not ultimately defined by our culture or even by our nationality. While these things matter, we have a higher allegiance as the old hymn writer says, this world is not my home, I must be a passing through. Now this doesn't mean that we don't care about our culture and our nation and the things around us. It doesn't mean that we ignore the problems of our world, but it does suggest that we have to be aware of the ways in which our culture pulls us to conform to its pattern, especially in those things that erode at or wage war in our soul. These are those deep-seated patterns of pride and selfishness, greed, bitterness, hatred. And of course, this is where Peter started with in his chapter today. Do you remember his first words? He said, get rid of that dirty t-shirt. Literally, take off that garment, all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. See, we are to live differently in our world. We are to live as resident aliens who do not conform to the culture around us because we have a higher allegiance. We are citizens in God's kingdom. All this, as I was thinking about this morning, reminded me of a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. Many of you might have heard of St. Francis. I love how he takes this sentiment that we are to reflect God's glory. We are to reflect his goodness in a countercultural way to the world around us. He writes this prayer. He says, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, 
let us so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. We are to live as citizens of God's kingdom first. Where might God be calling you to live as counter-cultural residents of his kingdom? Which brings us to our third point and our last verse in this passage today. What are the people of God to be? What are living stones to be? What are we to be known for? Peter says, we are to be known for our good deeds. Look at how he ends this section in verse 12. He says, therefore live such good lives among the pagans, or you could translate the Gentiles or even the Romans. Live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's kind of interesting, in Peter's day, there was a lot going on in the Roman world. You might remember this from your history class. The Roman Empire on the fringes where these churches were was starting to fray. It was starting to kind of come apart at the seams. And the emperor at that time, Emperor Trajan, uh, decided that the gods must not be happy with them. That's why things are falling apart. And so he actually puts out an edict because he thinks, you know why the gods aren't happy? The gods aren't happy because those Christians aren't sacrificing to the Roman gods, and that must be ticking them off, and that's why things are going to pot. So he writes this edict, and he sends it out to all of the governors in the region. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to rally up the Christians. I want you to throw them in prison. I want you to make sure they sacrifice to the emperor. They, they don't have to uh, change their beliefs. They just have to worship the emperor the way everybody in Roman society does. Because to be a Roman citizen, to be a Roman slave, meant that you worshiped and served the emperor as if a god. He was your highest allegiance. And Christians, for obvious reasons, could not do that, right? They could not do that. Jesus was their Lord. He was their highest allegiance. So this emperor Trajan writes, and up in the area of Asia Minor in Pontus and Bithynia, where these churches are, where Peter's writing to, there was a little governor there named Pliny the Younger. How would you like your name to be the Younger, right? I'm Aaron the Younger. I'd rather be Aaron the Better Looking or Aaron the Taller. But anyway, Pliny the Younger is the governor there. And Pliny's kind of, he's a sharp kid. He's not sure he's buying into this whole theory about the Christians being the root of the problem here. So he decides to go and investigate this for himself. He sends some of his spies to go infiltrate the local church in Bithynia. The spies go in. They actually pull a couple Christians out, and, and Pliny tells us, I mean, this is really graphic. He, tells, he, they, he kind of beats them up, tortures them a little bit, drags out what's actually going on. He's like, what, is, what are they really doing? I mean, are they plotting to overthrow the empire? I mean, that must be really what they're doing. They must be sinister and evil to the core. And so they rough them up. They get all this, and, and then he... The spies come back and share this with Pliny, and he writes this to Emperor Trajan, the findings of his investigation. Listen to what he says here. He says, here's what I found out, Trajan. The sum total of their guilt, that's the Christians, the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. Trajan, this is all I could find. They meet regularly before dawn. 
That is, they do this before they have to show up to work, right? They chant verses, that is, they sing songs uh, amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. Okay, so they, they gather before work, they sing some songs like we just did, and, and, get this, and, get this, this must be where it gets really bad. They bind themselves to an oath, but not for any criminal purpose, but simply to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, to commit no breach of trust, and not to deny a deposit when called upon to restore it. After this, cere- after this ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble later after work to take food of an ordinary harmless kind. All right, so here's what the spies found out when they infiltrated the church. Here's the sinister work the Christians are doing. They're gathering once a week before work to worship, and then they get in a circle and they make a promise to live as people of character and moral uprightness. That's what the Christians did. So Pliny writes to Trajan, he says, is this really the threat that we thought? I mean, do we need to, oust, do we need to get rid of all these people? Is this really the problem? And you can imagine, uh, he's kind of almost just chuckling. These guys are harmless. But the irony, if you know your history, the irony is that it was this very group of Christians who gathered for worship and prayer. Remember? Spiritual sacrifices. And who committed themselves to moral character and uprightness. They weren't going to steal. They weren't going to cheat anybody. They were going to be faithful to their husbands and wives. It was this group of people that, in fact, did overthrow not only a Roman government, but an entire Roman world. Centuries later, we barely remember the name Trajan and Pliny, but the name of Jesus is known around the world. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what would happen in our community here if every week we gathered in circles And we made an oath to one another like this, that we would not defraud anyone, that this week I'm not going to steal anything, any ideas or any credit. I'm not going to steal that from anyone. This week I will find myself to be faithful once again to my wife or my husband. This week I'm not going to let anybody down. I'm going to let my yes be yes and my no be no. I'm going to follow through on what I promise. Imagine, can you imagine such a world? You see, Christians, through the spiritual sacrifice of worship and prayer, and through their commitment to doing good in the world around them, changed the entire face of the Roman world. And what if, what if God wants to use you and me to do the same thing? Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you that you have chosen us, that you have adopted us as your sons and daughters, that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can enter into the holy of holies in that temple, and we can know with confidence that by your spirit, you come and dwell in us. Father, would you teach us what it means to be people committed to doing good in this world? that even in the face of resistance, in the face of culture that sometimes feels overwhelming, that we would not lose sight of the way, Jesus, that you have showed us, 
the way you have called us to? Would you shape us as your people? Would you shape us into the people of God? Would you make us into living stones through which your glory and your goodness can be seen in our world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.